because one of the best things you can do is get a good night's sleep, which helps your brain consolidate all that like information in studying for recall for a test. So it helps us think more clearly it, in terms of psychologically. It helps reduce anxiety, irritability. Our frustration tolerance is a lot higher. Our, our ability to tolerate distress, to think clearly during periods of stress is much better when we sleep. I'm Nicole Holcomb, attorney by day and podcaster by night, a former educator, school counselor, and administrator, and mom to a nine-year-old daughter with dyslexia who loves all things Harry Potter, Minecraft, and science. A few years ago, she was identified with dyslexia and our life seemed to turn upside down for a while, quite literally. I created the Dyslexia Mom Life podcast to help you navigate the upside down journey of dyslexia. You got this. If you're wanting to thrive as a mom in this dyslexia journey, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Welcome to the Dyslexia Mom Life podcast. Today in episode 17, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Roberto Olivardia. He is a clinical psychologist and clinical instructor of psychology at Harvard Medical School. He has appeared in publications such as Time, GQ, and Rolling Stone, and he's been featured on Good Morning America, CNN, and VH1. Today, we're going to talk about what every parent needs to know about sleep. Dr. Olivardia is going to share with us the benefits of sleep and also he's going to share with us some techniques and strategies that we as parents who struggle with getting our children to sleep, why that might be, and what are some strategies that we can use to help our children get better sleep. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our conversation. We are so excited to have you on the show. And if you would, if we could just start out with you introducing yourself to our audience and telling them a little bit about your work. Sure. Um, I am a clinical psychologist and a lecturer in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. And I special, I have a private practice and I specialize in uh, working people of all ages, children, adolescents, adults, um, ADHD, executive functioning issues. Um, I also specialize in treatment of eating disorders, particularly in boys and men, uh, people with obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, I see a lot of students with learning differences, learning disabilities, dyslexia. And then on a personal level, I have ADHD. I come from a long lineage of people with ADHD and learning um, differences. I also have probably a, a my, when I was younger, um, although it wasn't identified um, more of a mild dyslexia, I have a 15-year-old son with ADHD and dyslexia. And so I completely understand um, as a parent, because you know I'm a parent first before anything else, the... Um, the sort of that journey on on that end. So, you know, I, I come to it from a lot of different perspectives. Absolutely. And, and thank you for sharing that as well. So today we're we're obviously going to talk all about sleep. And I'm so excited to to talk about that because that is something I'm not only very interested in, but as a parent, very interested in. But before we get there, could you share a little bit about, for the audience that may not realize or you know, just starting this journey, a little bit about the co-occurrence of dyslexia with ADHD? I know a lot of your research is also in ADHD, and I think that'll be helpful as we talk about sleep, maybe to, to introduce that a little bit. Sure. So the what we we use the word comorbidity to refer to the association of when we see one condition with another. And we know with ADHD, about 50 to 60% of people with ADHD will have some kind of learning disability or learning difference, the most common one being dyslexia. 
And in research on dyslexic populations, we'll find about 30% of people with dyslexia have ADHD. Frankly, I would say in my experience, it's probably higher. I, I would say it's probably at least half the people that I've worked with with dyslexia also have ADHD. And part of ADHD are what we call these executive functioning issues. So executive functions are all those cognitive processes that our brain does to get things done. We have to manage time. We have to prioritize, organize our working memory. And these are things that even if you don't have ADHD, often affect kids with dyslexia um, are the executive functions. And, and sleep has you know, always been a, a, a big interest of mine as someone who uh, ha has had sleep issues and sleep problems and disorders my whole life. That is very, very common in people with ADHD. And as well as even kids I worked with who have dyslexia who may not have ADHD, a lot of the executive functioning issues that they have get wrapped up into sleep um, in a lot of ways. Yeah. I know with us, our daughter is dyslexic. She's nine. And a lot of times when we, we get settled for sleep, she says, I just, I can't make my brain stop. Like she has all these thoughts and all these things going on and all these great ideas. And it seems like when she lays her head on the pillow, all of it just comes back and, and she mm. just a hard time getting settled. So I know we'll talk a little bit more about that, but I, I completely understand where you're coming from as it relates to the difficulties. So Yes. And, and that, that quote, I mean, just as you said that it's, there's a sense of, um, a sensibility that people who who struggle with that immediately connect to because I I could word for word have said and have said that you know so many times you know in my life I mean one of the the best quotes I ever heard about sleep with with ADHD was for someone with AD, uh, ADHD going to sleep is lying in a dark room waiting for nothing to happen <laughs> it's just like you're just bored and you're like what am I supposed to do and and throughout the day, you know, you're busying yourself and there's stuff to do. And then at night, there's no stimulation except your, what's in your head. And there's a lot of activity that goes on in my head. And so sleep, where most people can kind of fall into slumber and they disconnect, that's the time for a lot of people where now all these thoughts and all this whirling activity is sort of coming to the surface. Right. Absolutely. And I know we'll get there. So I'm going to put a pin in that because I have lots of thoughts about that because I think... <laughs> Where, where we go from there. So let's, let's step back for just a quick second. So I know, and you know, and I'm sure many people know, everybody says it's such a, there's just lots of benefits to getting good sleep. And so could you share a little bit about specifics on that? Because I know you've done some research around that as it relates to, especially for children with dyslexia, who may be, my daughter's in, in late elementary school, but even middle and high school, I mean, all of us benefit from better sleep. So could you yes. share as far as, especially with kids in school, how that really plays a piece there. Absolutely. So, you know, I always tell um, client, any client, you know, that I work with, you know, we need to do three things to survive. We need to eat, we need to drink, and we need to sleep. And if either uh, any of those things are threatened, it really throws our body physically and mentally into very wacky places. And I, and I think it's so important to understand the foundation of that, especially with sleep, which 
And, and again, you know, I can speak from my experience. This is not how I think about it now has not been how I thought about it my whole life. I used to see sleep as something that was disposable. That's something that, oh, if I have time to sleep, I'll whatever, you know, if there's fun to be had, right, right. I'll, I'll have the fun. Or if I was procrastinating on something, it's like, oh, I'll pull an all nighter and write that paper, you know, in college. And, and it's only really been, frankly, in like the last maybe eight years that I really, really kind of connected it and paid attention to it. But when we properly sleep, we are um, in a way almost thinking of it as decluttering our mind. We're sort of vacuuming the spider webs and making sort of in in our brain and our frontal lobe just clearer. And, and, and there's actually what's called... Um, a defragmentation process, which people might remember back in the day with like our computers, we had to, they call it a defrag where basically our computer will take like bits of information and, and compile them, which makes it easier for it to access later on. That's what our brains do when we sleep. It basically takes, if you imagine a cluttered room and it says, oh, let's put all the pots on the shelf all together and we'll put all the books on the shelf. It, it really consolidates all that information, which is why the idea of staying up late to study for a test is actually one of the worst things that you can do because one of the best things you can do is get a good night's sleep, which helps your brain consolidate all that like information in studying for recall for a test. So it helps us think more clearly It, in terms of psychologically, it helps reduce anxiety, irritability, our frustration tolerance is a lot higher, our, our ability to tolerate distress, to think clearly during periods of stress is much better when we sleep. Interestingly, there's a lot of research in terms of that interplay also with weight and with appetite regulation, that when we don't sleep well, our metabolism drops and our body, because in a way, our evolutionary brain does what it can to keep us alive. And so if we're not sleeping, our brain thinks, well, it must be that there isn't enough food because that's a really important, that would be the only thing that we should be sleep deprived if we're looking for food. And so our bodies without us needing to, it drops our metabolism, it holds on to body fat storage, and it actually has us crave sugar and carbs. And so you know, one of the contributing factors actually to obesity is sleep deprivation. So it, it, it hits us in that way. So sleep is so, and then of course, what it does to our immune system is I've seen, you know, in periods of my life where I was vastly sleep deprived and then would get shingles and would get mono and would get like things that, you know, a young person shouldn't be getting, but it's because my immune system, it's just too much. It's like, we wouldn't think about running a car without, you know, oil and gasoline, like it would just peter out at some time. So, but especially for any neurodiverse kid that, you know, I, I still, you know, marvel in looking back and thinking how much energy it took me to get through the day, like at school, you know, prior to college, school was not fun for me. I didn't enjoy it. And it's just so much energy for these kids to just get through the day. And especially kids with dyslexia who have this additional sort of dimension of, you know, especially, and, and especially if they're not even getting the kind of education that they need um, and work and remediation they need, they need as much fuel more, even more than your typical kid. So when they're sleep deprived and studies will show that it just makes 
everything even much more uh, difficult for them, which then makes them really not like school more, which then becomes this really bad cycle very quickly. So at the foundation, you know, the first session I have with anyone, I'm always asking, tell me about how you're eating throughout the day. Tell me about your sleep habits. And let's start with that. Because if somebody's telling me they're sleeping three hours a night, and they're anxious or depressed, we're going to start on your sleep because we can clear up a lot just by getting those things in order. Right. And I know, you know, you see different things when you look at different research as far as what is, and and even, you know, physicians may have different opinions on how much sleep someone needs. So as a parent trying to figure that out, I know everybody's different, but I know there's some general guidelines as far as sleep. How do you help your your clients kind of figure that out and your patients figure out what is a good amount of sleep for, for their child? So typically with young people, and and even when I tell young people this, they're, you know, shocked, but it's it's about in adolescents who, especially that group is very, very tough because they now have all these devices and and things to keep them up, you know, late at night. They need, you know, anywhere from like eight at the minimum to like 10 hours of sleep is what's recommended. Now, again, there is some variability. Like we know that there's some research on particularly certain subpopulations of people with ADHD that might require less sleep and do fine. But part of it is how we test that though is Let's look at when somebody isn't distracted with video games and with the internet and whatnot, like do they get do they get themselves tired? And I know, for example, like for myself, it was always difficult for me to go to bed super early as a kid. So I have something called a delayed sleep phase syndrome, which is not uncommon in people with ADHD, where in a way where a lot of people are getting tired at 10 o'clock at night, I feel like this rush of energy. This is less so now as I'm getting older, <laughs> but when I was younger, I would get like, it would this surge of energy at 10 o'clock at night. And to me, it was, you know, like one that I would start to feel tired. And when I had a sleep study in my early thirties that actually showed this, it was so validating because I'm like, oh, okay. So it's not just, you know, me now that doesn't mean I don't, I still work at it and I don't have to go to bed at one, two, you know, in the morning, but it does mean it's a little bit harder. And I think that's important too, for parents to know is that sometimes, you know, when their kids are like, I can't fall asleep, you know, so early, they might be right. Now they might need, it doesn't mean, okay, well fine, then stay up until, you know, one in the morning. It, but it does mean you might have to work with it and you might have to develop strategies and, and, because it, it was, it's a foreign, even today, it's a bit of a foreign concept that somebody can just go to bed and just their head hits the pillow and they just easily fall asleep. Like that's never been an easy transition. And that's what our daughter says too. She says, I just, it's just, it is like she gets a second wind, right? As far yeah. as closer to bedtime. And so, and I've also too, just kind of tried to give myself a little bit more grace because, you know, we grow up thinking, well, we just got to lay down and go to sleep. But I know for her, you know, she needs that white noise or she needs something in the background. And it may be that she's watching the same show she's seen literally probably 25 times. Yep. <laughs> helps her because then I'll say, just close your eyes and listen. And within a few minutes, she'll kind of fall, you know, she'll start kind of, you know, falling asleep. But that doesn't always help. That doesn't always work. But I've learned that I've just got to be as creative as I can and give us both space to figure it out instead of and just. I- 
this is the only way. It's not, you know, it looks different for everybody. Exactly. And I think that that's the key, you know, and, and for parents um, to, to understand, because you're absolutely right. I mean, not every brain is the same. And, you know, we, these are neurodiverse kids. And so we wouldn't expect in some ways that their brains are going to respond, you know, similarly. But what, what I love about that example is, you know, yes, we have to be creative and out of the box. And again, you know, as you're giving that example, I'm smiling because, oh yeah, I mean, for me, it's like there are certain TV shows that I can have, you know, in, in the background and that I've seen a million times. And and why that works is because what it's doing is it's providing her with enough stimulation that she's not thinking and distracted by the thoughts in her head, but not overstimulating her where it's revving her up and keeping her awake. So it's in that, you know, I, I, when I was a kid without even realizing what I was saying, it was so diagnostic even then, but I used to, I, I, would identify with Goldilocks, the character of the three bears. Cause I'm like, yeah, sometimes things are just too hard or too soft and I need it just right. And I would say that about a lot of things. And this is exactly what I was talking about is that that zone is a wider zone for people who are not neurodiverse in terms of what they need to just fall asleep. And what part of what comes along with any neurodiversity is that zone finding how do I get into that, you know, narrow zone. Now, I always tell kids that the the right now it's challenging and it could be hard and it is, it's frustrating. Like I, because other people just naturally fall asleep, just like other people naturally read and other people naturally. But what I always say to kids is, you know, one of the, the upsides later on that you come across is at this point, you know, as an adult, I know myself really well. Like you just become your, your best researcher. Like I, I have collected so much data from just, I'm going to try this. Okay. Oh, wow. And then when something works, it's so exciting. And then you just use it. You're like brand loyal, you know, to it. <laughs> and so at this point, I'm like, I know exactly what works for me and what doesn't very, very quickly because I've had to. And so your daughter will, she'll find out what's tried and true. And then as she moves into adulthood, it will be like, okay, this is just what I do. Yeah, because we've even found out recently if we like there might be a different show she wants to try to watch, but we'll, you know, get her ready, leave the room, come back and check on her. And she's wide awake. Did you right. see? That? Like, she's so story. And I'm like, we've seen it 30 times. Why is tonight you're so into the story? But for some shows, it's just the opposite. It can't be for us anyway. It can't be just that there's that white noise. There's just certain things that, or certain shows or music that, and it was for a while, we actually, this may help the audience too. I don't know if you recommend this. I'm just trying to think through some strategies to help people, but we would do audiobooks. Like she mm-hmm. loves her, so she can't read that, but my husband would put it on the iPad and it would read to her and that would kind of help her, you know, she'd close her eyes and kind of visualize the story that she's watched over and over again on the movie. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, do you recommend, I mean, what are some other strategies or recommendations we could share? Is, is something like that good for people as well, like audiobooks and things? Or Absolutely. I mean, I think that the, the, the general line is try it and see how it works, because for some people that wouldn't work. Like, so for example, reading before bedtime was, could not be anything I could ever do, because either A, I'm not going to read a book that I find unstimulating or boring. Like that's, uh, that's part of ADHD is that I have a very, very low tolerance for boredom. So if it passes that threshold of this is interesting, now I'm too 
curious and I'm too, I'm not going to put it down. And so I can't regulate that. So that would never work. Now it's interesting. You mentioned Harry Potter, because if I were to take a poll of the most common audiobook that my neurodiverse kids fall asleep to and, and adults as well, it's the Harry Potter books, which I have not, I have not read any of the Harry Potter books. Um, and, but I've, been uh, recommended by friends that um, they say the audiobook is amazing that the guy that that does it so that could work for some people because they can drift off and they'll pick up where they left off and they know the story and for other people it doesn't because it's just they love it they connect to it it's same with music that you know sometimes you can have music playing and that's like enough and then other times it it revs them up and and it's not always predictable too now strangely like i have um a young he's 11 years old he has a dyslexia and adhd and these and sleep issues and you know the, the parents you know we've been sort of toying with different things and um they put on like this sort of more like classical kind of music and he found it very cacophonous um like the sound was just like jarring so he falls asleep and I'm not, not even joking, to Metallica, the group Metallica, every night. And there's something about the fact that it's stimulating enough, but it doesn't overstimulate him. Because again, we have to remember, this is a different kind of brain, that if you're coming from, like with ADHD, your baseline is, it's like the ADHD is basically like a bored brain. That's sort of how we conceptualize it. And so we need a lot of stimulation to feel very grounded. Now, what could overstimulate other people might get us right on baseline. And so I can understand that because there have been times I've written college papers to punk music, which I'm a big fan of, which people would be like, how uh, that would be the, like the last <laughs> genre of music I would listen to. And that is what grounds me. Whereas something like Enya wouldn't work for me writing a paper. Although I love Enya for like sleep, you know, like she's my go-to artist for sleep. She's very ethereal. And so sometimes it, it really is you have to think we're, these are out of the box kids and which is great. We want to celebrate the fact that they're out of the box, but it means the strategies might be a bit out of the box too. Right. And I'm glad you said that out of the box. So here's a thought. <laughs> I don't know what you think. <laughs> One of the things we tried to, we just kind of, I guess, stumbled upon it because of another family member, but is using essential oils. And so we have found like if we do some combinations of essential oils, um, it does help kind of calm her. And I don't know if it's her brain going, okay, I remember we usually have this at sleep time. That's what I think, but I'm sure I'm wrong. But it does seem to help. You know, she'll even ask sometimes, hey, can we can we turn on the diffuser? And mm -hmm. actually, I guess, correlates that with sleep too. And so, because I use it during the day in my office, but at home, I usually, I usually use it mostly at night, but yes. we have found that that helps. I don't know if that's something. Absolutely. So with, with, you know, anything that's sensory, because basically what we're trying to do is, you know, when we, with people who have sleep issues, like going to sleep, they're almost not properly grounded. Like if you think of it, like from a, like almost like their body is sort of floating or their mind is floating where we want to be like in the bed, our mind in, in focused on going to sleep. So how do we like ground ourselves? Now that can be physical in the sense of like weighted blankets, for example. Mm -hmm. Now I bought one for myself, uh, it was a 20 pound blanket and I slept so deeply. Now for me, however, I almost had this hangover effect though from it where the whole next day I was so groggy. So that doesn't work for me, but I have kids that I work with 
they love it. Like they were like, oh my gosh, this is, I wish I had this, you know, since I was born basically. So it could be as physical as that. I sleep though with a heavy comforter on me. So I have to have some weight on me, um, turning, you know, the temperature down, you know, but things like oils, absolutely. Like I, there's something like, so I'm, I see all my patients virtually now be, um, because of the pandemic, but I still, I come into my office. I have a private office to, and, you know, through the computer, but I still put cologne on every day because to me, cologne was, I mean, certainly I don't want to smell, uh, you know, to other people um, in, in a negative way, but I like the smell of it. Like it's, there's something about it that is very grounding and calming. And so I totally, I know lots of people that have diffusers and things like that, that have like very pleasant sort of smells and it just, it's, it's grounding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and what are your thoughts on kind of switching gears a little bit as far as the use of things like melatonin? I know we've used yeah. it number of years and it worked for a number of years, but now I think maybe her body's just used to it and it doesn't seem like it works as effectively as it once did for us. So yeah. I, I was curious what your thoughts were on that as well. I know everything's very individualized, but I was just curious what your thoughts were on, on melatonin. Yeah. So melatonin is actually, you know, and I, of course, always preface, you know, by saying always consult your pediatrician and always consult your doctor. I'm not a physician, but the studies um, show it can be very helpful actually for kids and in not for, again, the majority of kids, not harmful. You can sometimes develop a tolerance for it, you know, if it's taken in, you know, a certain amount of milligrams. But in addition, it's, I guess, a question of, is it, for some people, it's tolerance. And for other people, it's that you have a system you know, the body is growing, you know, so who you are in first grade is a different body than who you are in fifth grade. And so it's not that the melatonin didn't work. It's just, you might need sometimes a different dosage, um, you know, of it. A lot of times though, too, people will take it as a sleep aid, meaning that they're taking it at the time they go to bed, which is not how it's supposed to be. You really should be taking it about 90 minutes before you go to sleep, because what it's really doing is, is, secreting sort of melatonin, which is readying your body to go to sleep. So a lot of times people are in bed and they pop their melatonin. That's not, it's, it's not going to work. That's not what it's, you know, meant for, but yeah, there are lots of um, young people that I work with who that's part of their nightly. They've been taking melatonin for a, a number of years and they're fine. And, and it can be very helpful because basically what's happening in some of these neurodiverse brains is that they're not getting the proper levels of, of melatonin that again is readying their body for slumber and for, for sleep. But definitely always, you know, check with your doctor because sometimes, you know, especially, you know, there are three milligram, there are five milligrams. Sometimes people take too much of it and then they have this sort of hangover effect the next day and, and things like that. So you always want to just check with your doctor, but yeah, it's, it's not, um, in general, not a harmful thing. Uh, thank you for that. And also I was thinking too, as you were talking and we were a few minutes ago, we were talking about, actually, I think it's before we even hit record, we were just talking kind of about what the world looks like right now and how everybody has a little bit different back to school as far as how that looks. And so I'm curious as you have been working with people through the pandemic, are you seeing more correlation with problems going to sleep because children are are spending more time on devices, I guess is where I'm going. They're spending more time on these Zoom calls. They're spending more time maybe completing work. And so there, you know, there's just a lot of different debate about that. And so I know a lot of people recommend 
you know, be off of a device an hour before. I was just kind of curious if you have seen any of that and, and what your recommendations as it relates to that as well and sleep. Did I lose you? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you, yep, you, you were slowing down for a second there. Um, um, yeah, so I, I heard the question, absolutely, that there's no question that um, the pandemic has complicated things on, on a number of levels, but in regards to sleep, definitely. I mean, I think when you're with remote learning, you're on a screen all day long, these brains are, are just, they're both fried and wired at the same time. It's almost like they, they've sort of oversaturated and yet it's, it's too difficult to just now just settle into bed. Like they need something more stim, like at physically active sometimes to just, again, ground themselves. So it's really important, especially if you're in a remote learning situation of making sure that your kid has physical activity breaks, that they're running around, they're doing jumping jacks, you know, they're kind of moving because otherwise if the body is almost too still for too long and just the stimulation of, of a screen they're going to bed and it's almost like they're they're not settled in any way. Um, so without a doubt, I've seen lots of lots of problems with sleep, you know, given given this. And they're also, they're not doing a lot of the things that they would normally do that might kind of discharge maybe some of that emotional energy and and that cognitive energy that they have. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I want to ask you a, a more personal question, which is a, a parenting question. What, you know, what's the best advice you've received as a parent? I know you've shared that, that your boys have, or one of your boys has dyslexia, um, some ADHD, and you shared that you personally have, you know, ADHD as well, and maybe dyslexia. So what are some, I mean, when you think back on some of the best advice that you received? I would say, I mean, I know from, you know, my experience that when my son was six, when you know, I had him tested and I, I knew the ADHD was there and I thought, okay, well, it's probably likely that there's some learning difference. I was actually surprised by how severe the dyslexia was at, at the time that, you know, with the testing and my first concern was really not around the reading. It was more around his self-esteem. And the the advice that, you know, I always get and what I hear from parents is even more than the frustration of, you know, the, the reading part is we can't have our kids think that they're stupid, that they're worthless, that they don't have anything to contribute to society. And that to me is the, you know, I, I said to my wife, like, we'll figure out like the reading, but we can't have him think he's stupid. I mean, he's not, and nobody is, we all have something to contribute. So if anything is, I would say really you know, obviously we want to, we want to advocate for our children and, and give them the resources that they need, but let's always remember first and foremost is we need them to feel like that they have worth and they have value. And more than, you know, one of the best pieces of advice I, I remember getting, it was actually a lecture that I had saw, um, I had seen from a psychologist named Carol Dweck, D-W-E-C-K, and she wrote a book called Mindset, which is a fantastic book if um, parents haven't read it. It's actually a great book just in general, not even if you, even for people who don't have children. But the idea that just telling your kids you're smart actually is not necessarily good for them, you know, and, and that, you know, there are ways we want to be specific about, oh, I noticed you helped your friend through that problem. That's a really good skill, you know, that you have and being very specific. And, and especially as a, as a parent, like you, when you have a child with dyslexia, 
because you don't want them to think, you know, that they're dumb. It's so easy to be like, no, you're smart, you're smart, you're smart. And I was so glad I saw that lecture and hearing, okay, no, he's not, he can't just hear that because A, he's going to know that he's going to be frustrated by these challenges and he'll just soon think, well, you're my dad. Of course you're you know, going to say that. So I have to be very specific. And, and that's what I, I took that, you know, piece of advice. And, and that's what I, you know, pass on to, to parents is that, you know, we know our children are, are bright, but they need to hear sort of more specifically, like, you know, man, you know, the way you went up and down that basketball court, like you owned it and that you were like playing like a chess game, how people play chess, like you knew the moves and how to do that. That's not something that comes easily. Like my son has an amazing sense of direction. I honestly have like a learning disability around that. I really, and, and I've experienced, you know, this has been like my whole life um, in terms of directions. And so it's very easy, especially when you're a child or a kid, to think that what comes easy to you is easy to everybody else. And that's something that's always good to highlight to kids and say, you know, that that doesn't come easy to everybody else. And in the same way that people who are, you know, who read fluently assume that that comes easily to other people. And, and it, as we know, it doesn't. So, but I would say that to me was a very important piece of advice is that, you know, because of course you just want to be like, no, you're smart. Everything's good. You know, you're smart. And to be as specific as possible is really important. Yeah. I think that's, that's spot on amazing. Cause you know, at the end of the day, we also want them to trust us and we know they're going to yes. Right. And so we don't want to be unrealistic. And I've read that book too. It's a great book because it really does help you kind of reframe the way you uh, do the positive reinforcement with your child. And that way it really does build that relationship with your child. So because one of the things we share with our daughter is, you know, everybody has strengths, everybody has weaknesses, everybody has places and areas to grow, you know, maybe like, for example, my mom is, uh, loves to bake and loves to cook, but my, my mother-in-law did not. And so it's just, I said, you know, every, every one of us has different gifts right. and so I, to kind of capture that as well. But I think you're right. I think if we, you know, I think that validating piece and knowing that, okay, so when we say something, it, it really is us saying it because we believe it. Right. And not exactly. just, exactly. though there's some of that too, right. <laughs> because <laughs> we know, right. Absolutely. So now I know you said that you're doing a lot of remote work. Is there anywhere where we could share information with our audience as far as where to connect with you with the work that you do or somewhere they could follow you and the information that you're sharing with families? So I am, um, I sort of, you know, said by my friends and colleagues that I sort of live in the dark ages and that I don't have Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. I don't even have a website. And, and also just as a note on that, you know, I have a 15 year old son, a 13 year old daughter, and neither of them have any social media. And my advice, honestly, and I know sometimes parents laugh at me when I say this is the longer you can keep them off social media, the better. And honestly, my goal is to get them both through high school without any social media. And it's working so far so good because one, I think it's, I just know that if I had that, I would have just lost so much time. Like, I mean, it, it, it's, how do you, you know, it's, it's like candy, you know, I mean, how, how do you just help any expect these kids are going to regulate that. But two is I do a lot of work in the area of body image and eating disorders. And, and there's a lot of research, very distressing research showing how terrible it is for both boys and girls, body image, the more that they take in 
um, social media, things like Instagram and, and Snapchat. And so it has, and then socially, all of these other things. So anyway, it, the, the, the longer you can sort of put that off, the better. <laughs> and a lot of times parents think it's unrealistic. It's actually not like my, my kids are not out of touch with their friends. They're not like outsiders, like they're able, you know, you kind of find ways of, of navigating. Um, so I, I just encourage people to just email me. Um, and my email is Roberto, R-O-B-E-R-T-O underscore Olivardia, which is O-L-I-V as in Victor, A-R, D as in Daniel, I-A, at hms.harvard.edu. And I'd be, I mean, if you put my name in YouTube, lots of things will pop up on YouTube. Um, it's not on my, I don't have a particular YouTube channel, but there are lectures that I've given in the OCD world, the eating disorder world, dyslexia world, ADHD world, the various things that I'm, I'm involved with. And at Attitude is a website, um, A-D-D-I-T-U-D-E. Their website is attitudemag.com. Fantastic resource for ADHD. Um, I'm on the scientific advisory board, but I've written lots of articles for them as well and do free webinars for them. Um, understood.org, fantastic um, website. Um, I've done videos for them. But if people have any questions from this podcast or looking for people in their area that, you know, I always say, just shoot me an email. I will absolutely respond to you. And, um, and yeah, but at some point, I don't know, people are like, at some point you're going to need like Facebook or Twitter or something. I'm like, I, I, I like when people, so it, to me, it's more personal too, you know, when people sort of can connect and, and I like also knowing, especially where people from other parts of the country, you know, I'm, I'm, born and raised here in Boston and um, Massachusetts is, I would say, a very good state for mental health resources and, you know, overall. And so it is helpful to know that, you know, where people are struggling. So I could, you know, try to, uh, what work can we do, you know, in these parts when I go to conferences around the country and, and talk to parents and think, gosh, you know, like just some of the the lack of resources and and that fuels my advocacy even more of like what work do us do us in the field have to do to sort of get the word out in those parts you know so it's always good to hear people's stories right and thank you so much I appreciate your time and I appreciate everything that you're doing on your end and it's been great to to connect and talk with you today same here it's a pleasure okay so who out there is still having trouble getting their child or children to fall to sleep at night? Don't be shy. My hand is already raised high in the sky because <laughs> it's definitely something we struggle with at our house. So if you're struggling to find ways to help your child sleep, I've put together a free little resource for you, a five proven ways to help your child sleep based on the information that Dr. Olivardia has shared with us today. So, go grab your free PDF resource that I've put together just for you. You can find it in the show notes at dyslexiamomlife.com backslash episode 17. I'll also put a link in the description where you listen to your podcast. So no need to take your eyes off the road. I've got you covered. Go out and have a fantastic week. And remember, you got this. <laughs>